being here so they could enjoy the service. And Amanda gave such a phenomenal sermon and teaching just from her life and from Scripture. Can we give it up for her tonight? Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. And uh, I give a shout-out myself to every one of the women that, and men that serve back there in Kid Life regularly. Those people that wear black shirts that say Kid Life and those people that wear blue shirts that say, how can we help you? Those are the MVPs. Those are, our services don't happen without them. So God bless every one of you that, that serves the church in that way. Um, you see somebody with a blue shirt on, a black shirt on, invite them out to dinner, right? Buy them dinner because they're serving our kids. They're serving you as, as they come early to set up. And, again, church couldn't happen without them. So whatever plans you got tonight, uh, maybe you've got plans. Uh, Nine o'clock tonight, the Western Conference Finals of the NBA. Anybody making plans to watch that? There's some, somebody, somebody got me. And Dom, thank you, thank you. Uh, the Western Conference Finals, because it's the West Coast. So these games normally start at like 1030. Uh, so if you can't relate to the basketball, you can at least relate to this. I used to stay up for these games that start at 1030, go to like 130. With regularity, I cannot do that anymore. So tonight, starting at 9, so you get to watch two of probably the best point guards in the entire NBA playing. And if you watch, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, a, a basketball game, you'll see what, what they call a fast break where they get the ball, they take a rebound, and they try to get up court as fast as possible to get in scoring position. It's exciting when somebody like, say, Russell Westbrook has the ball, and he can do that in literally four seconds flat, get from one side of the court to the other and score. So maybe you're looking at me like, I, I could care less, right? But the reason I share all of that is because of the Bible's four Gospels, the Gospel of Mark is a fast break gospel. It is a fast-paced gospel. It's a gospel on the move. It's in seeming perpetual motion. You know, when I, when I preach and, and Steph listens, she's always like, this is, this is your pet word this year. Because she'll tell me what my pet word is, like the word I use all the time in my sermons, and then I'll get self-conscious about it, eliminate that one, and, and pick up another one, right? And then she'll tell me again, and then it's a whole pivot to another word. Mark had a pet word. Uh, Mark's pet word was immediately. He uses the Greek word that means immediately 41 times in 16 chapters. Everything seems to be immediately. We're going to read six verses tonight, and there's two immediately's in those six verses. Right? His gospel, it starts with a sense of immediacy. There's no nativity in Mark. There's no virgin birth in Mark. There's no angels visiting Mary in, Mary in Mark. No, it just starts with Jesus' baptism and gets right rolling with his ministry. And the focus of Mark's account, and if we go further with the basketball analogy, the goal on his basket, his goal with his gospel is tackling the question, is Jesus the Messiah? And we see in the structure of his gospel that we, we see at the very beginning, again, it starts with Jesus' baptism. And if you're familiar with Jesus' baptism, maybe you're not. The sky opens, and as Jesus comes out of the water, God says, God the Father from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So from the jump, we begin to see confirmation. And then halfway through Mark, at the, the midpoint of Mark, as we're about to look at, it's the moment where Jesus asks Peter, where he asks his disciples, and Peter answers, he asks, who do, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Who do, who do you say that I am? And then at the very end of Mark, Mark 15, Jesus' crucifixion as he passes on the cross, it's a Roman centurion of all people who looks at him and says, surely this was the Son of God. And you know, soon after this verse, Mark ends almost as quickly as it starts. Mark ends, and it ends so immediately. Your footnotes in your Bible will tell you that the earliest and most reliable transcripts we have of Mark end in six, chapter 16, verse 8. 
where it says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. Everybody go home, right? It's an abrupt ending. It's an immediate ending. It's startling, which is fitting, because if you're the disciples in this moment where Jesus just died, you're startled. You're thinking, time out. Wait, wait, wait. What just happened? This Messiah we were following who's supposed to usher in his kingdom, he died. What's even happening? But the gospel of Mark, as you read through it, it prepares you for this moment. Because the format of the gospel of Mark, if you look at the first half of the book, it deals with who Jesus is. Again, the Messiah, the who. And then the second half of Mark looks at, okay, how is he going to usher in his kingdom? which we now know was through suffering and dying on the cross for us, for me and for you. But the first and second half of the Gospel of Mark, it's split in the middle by a couple chapters where the pace slows a bit. It's almost like Mark calls time out so he can confirm what he's been working on throughout that first half of the Gospel. Because again, at the middle of Mark where the pace slows is where Jesus has his conversation with his disciples and he asks, okay, who do you say that I am? And we see it in the culmination of the first half detailing who Jesus is, and it's setting up the how. When Peter confesses, look, you're the Christ. You're the one we were looking for. You're the Messiah. Jesus says, okay, you're right. And then he goes on to explain how he was going to usher in his kingdom, that he was going to have to suffer, that he was going to have to die. And it's like Peter has his own, (laughs) wait, what? Time out. He calls them out. He pulls Jesus aside, and it says that he rebukes Jesus, right? Never a good plan, right? He pulls Jesus aside, rebukes him, and this is where Jesus famously says, get behind me, Satan, right? Maybe you said that to insects, animals, who knows, drivers, I don't know. But Jesus says that to Peter. That's where this comes from because Peter pulls him aside, and he's so startled. He's like, Wait, what? He, he rebukes Jesus thinking that Jesus was going to have to suffer and die. But Jesus says this to him, and then reaffirms, re-explains that, no, 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 I'm going to have to go to the cross, suffer, and die for humanity. He desperately wanted his followers to know who he was, why he came, and what that meant for them. And I would tell you tonight, he desperately wants that for you. He wants that for you. He wants that for me. He wants that for all of us, that we would understand who Jesus was, why he came for me and for you, and what that means for me. And what that means for you. You know, in 2016, the Harvard Dean of Education gave a commencement address that went viral. And it sparked a a New York Times bestseller that he wrote that was actually called, wait, what? (laughs) And it was about the, the, some of life's most important questions that we can ask. And, and, And the first question that he posed is this, wait, what? And I put that picture up of the disciples because as an art major, when I think of the disciples looking confused, I think of these three guys at the table in the Last Supper. And that guy in the middle, I always think he looks just like this young lady that became famous as a meme. Like, just that look of confusion. Like, wait, the hand just up. Like, wait, what is going on? Like, confusion, sheer confusion. Because you might say, wait, what? Or wait, what? Right, but whatever it is, in his speech, he said that, as we dial it back in, Harvard professor talking, excuse me, Harvard dean of education, in his speech he said, wait, what, is actually a very effective way of asking for clarification. Wait, what, is at the root of understanding. He was explaining how when you say wait, it pays to slow down 
and make sure that you truly understand. And I wonder how often we fail to do this with the Bible. Not because the whole Bible is like Mark and it's at a fast pace and it's on a fast break, but because we (laughs) are on a fast pace. And in our life, we're running a fast break because we're so booked by our busyness that our, our Bible reading, if we even do it, becomes transactional rather than relational. You know, relationships take time and investment, but so often we want a a microwaved transaction. We skim the surface to check the box and miss the depth of relationship that comes with kind of pausing to understand, okay, who is God? What is he saying here, and what does it mean for me? Often when there's uh, hard-to-understand parts of Scripture on the surface, I consider this an invitation from God to dig deep and step deeper into relationship. But, you know, sometimes I miss that RSVP. Sometimes I don't RSVP on those moments, and I get back to living life at a fast pace to to get to my to-do list where reading was just one of those things. But this series is I want to spend just three to four weeks in the Gospel of Mark looking at some of these moments that make you say, wait, what? Because when you pause and call time out and RSVP in those moments to dig deeper in those 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 passages of scripture that maybe seem hard to understand on the first pass, you can discover so much about God, so much about why Jesus came, and so much about what that means for you. You know, like the, the past few years for Steph and I, when we adopted Raj and his special needs and found out just about the same time Steph's condition and it's degenerative and how the, how's this all going to work out and just the revelation we've come to about God in those years, like some of the biggest revelations, if there was a greatest hits of, of what God has spoken in this season, tonight would be one of them. It's in Mark chapter 6. It's in verse 45 through 51, and we can read it. And immediately you will see the word immediately. <laughs> in verse 45 of Mark chapter 6, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Like, this isn't normal. This is a man walking on water. This is why they're wigging out. You would too, right? It says, immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. So we're coming out of Jesus feeding the thousands, so that's what they're speaking to with the loaves. But at the beginning of our passage, in verse 45, it says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. In the New Living Translation, it says he insists. Like if they said, do we really have to? He's like, no, 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 please, get in the boat and go. Now, the deep theological reasoning, right, would be that he's going to test the disciples, that uh, he, he's setting the table for this whole encounter we just read but you know the real life reason, right, the, the, the raw reality when you remember Jesus was fully human is as parents, have you ever just needed a break from your kids? Right? Like you say, go outside and don't come back in until I say it's okay. Or maybe you're like, go downstairs, don't come back upstairs until I say 
it's okay to come back, right? So I think sometimes we forget Jesus was fully human. He got tired physically. He got tired mentally. And sometimes I think we forget that the disciples probably, if you study outside of Peter, were young. We're talking teenagers. Like this guy's hanging out with some young folks 24-7, and he just, man, sometimes you need a break. As a guy who was in youth ministry who didn't even have to spend 24-7 with the teenagers, let me tell you, sometimes you, you need that break. But why do people think it was a test? Because, again, they went into this storm of sorts, and it says that they're, they're rowing hard. They're straining and struggling against the, the wind and the waves. Maybe you can relate. You know, they, it says that they were in the middle of the lake, so they were probably in the deepest part. Maybe you feel like you're neck deep. Maybe you feel like you're drowning in anxiety, confusion, conflict. It says it was the fourth watch, too, which means it was probably between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So you're talking the darkest time of the night, the deepest part of the lake. Maybe you feel like you're kind of in a fog where you've been stuck, feel like there's no path forward. Maybe you're unsure where to turn. Maybe it just sometimes it feels suffocating. You're straining and struggling. You ever been there, neck deep in a dark place? (laughs) Maybe you are there. You're like, Amanda was talking about last week, so often in life, you're either in a valley, going into a valley, or coming out of a valley. And maybe you're in a dark place, or coming out of one, or going into one. You're facing adversity. Maybe you're distressed by rowing and just trying to stay afloat, and God seems absent. God seems off the job. God seems like he's forgotten about you. I love in verse 48, though, it says Jesus saw they were straining. How could he see them? Was he so high up on this mountain that he could see out to where they were on the lake? It's not likely. Again, it's the darkest part of night. They're in the middle of this lake. It's likely that Jesus, God in the flesh, supernaturally saw the situation they were in. Saw it supernaturally. And I love that this is just yet another picture in Scripture where we see God doesn't simply observe and sit back. God is not the God of deism that just created and then sit back, sits back to watch how it plays out but never intervenes. No, God is a God that comes to us. God is a God that moves on our behalf. See, God is transcendent. Right? He's almighty. He's sovereign. But he's also imminent. Or you could say he's infinite, but he's also intimate. All right? God doesn't just see. He cares and he pursues. It's the beauty of the gospel. <laughs> That when we couldn't come into his presence because of our sin, when we were separated from him eternally, he sent his son to pursue us and to come to us, to bridge that gap and to die for us. But here we get this microcosm of that as Jesus sees the disciples in distress and comes out to them. It says he came toward them. So even when we can't see him, or even when it seems like we're in such a dark place, we don't know where God's at, we can trust that he sees us, that he loves us. That he pursues us, even in the deepest of seas, even on the furthest horizons, even when we've caused our own troubles, (laughs) we got ourselves into it. Like the father of the prodigal, he's looking towards the horizon, waiting for us to come so he can run out to us. Then there's other times where life just comes at us. But I love it's in the the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, right, the lion, this representation of God and Jesus. He crosses the sea In the book, much like Jesus does here, and it says that Aslan was among them, even though no one had seen him coming. God is among you. Jesus is with you. His Holy Spirit is in you, even when you don't see him coming. 
And Jesus comes to his disciples, and you're thinking as you're reading this, like he's coming to rescue them, right? He's coming to save them. He's coming to deliver them, to give us this picture of a God that that saves and intervenes and, and loves us enough to come and rescue us when we're in a mess. And then it says he was about to pass by them. And I used to always think when I'm reading, like, time out, wait, what? <laughs> he went out on the water, walked on water just to sneak past them, like to pass by them. And it's the question that so many have asked, because on surface level, this seems problematic. Like you think of the parable of the Good Samaritan and how this man was in need, and Jesus looks kind of like the priest and Levite who, granted, he's not walking on a path, he's walking on water, just decides, oh, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to pass by. All right, Good Samaritan, bad Jesus. Is that what we're seeing here? And this has sparked a lot of, wait, what moments for theologians for centuries who tried to understand what was going through Jesus' head. And there's all kinds of speculation. There's people that think Jesus wanted to sneak past them so he could surprise them on the other side of the water, like an episode of, what is it, Impractical Jokers, right? Like, that's playful, right? And somebody might find that funny, but it seems kind of void of pity and mercy when the, the disciples are struggling and he would just walk right past them. And some would say that he planned to stop, or excuse me, he planned to go by them, but he changed his mind when he saw them struggling. But it says he saw them struggling and straining before he ever went to go out to them. Others say that, you know, if you, if you twist the tense and verbiage a little bit, it just means that he was uh, about to pass them or he wanted to simply walk alongside them, but the language doesn't really hold that up. Or maybe the, mis- the disciples just misread his intentions. But again, the, the passage doesn't support this. And I, I'm not saying I, I know what's going on here for sure, but I want to, in this series, myth busting, we talked about how when you're looking at a passage, it's confusing you. Look at the context of the passage. Look at the language. Look at what's going on around it. And then look at the greater content of Scripture, and it helps you understand what am I dealing with here. And in this case, we should look back to the Old Testament. Because when you look at the language and you look at the context, the, the verb used here, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, that is used for the phrase pass by, when it's connected to divinity, it speaks to a theophany. Now, what's a theophany? It's a visible manifestation of God to a human or humankind. We see it in Scripture, this idea of passing by twice in the Old Testament. We see it the first time in Exodus 33, where Moses is at Mount Sinai. He's getting the Ten Commandments, and no sooner do they get the Ten Commandments than the Israelites start breaking them egregiously with the golden calf, and they start worshiping idols, all while Moses is still up on Mount Sinai. So God is like, look, when I send you guys out, I'm not going with you, because God has a righteous anger, and let's just say he was mad. (laughs) Moses, however, intercedes for the Israelites. He's like, we're not going if you don't go with us. And as an assurance, he says, look, show me your glory. It's a bold ask. I love that Moses even dared to ask it. And what the Lord said, he says, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Or you look at 1 Kings 19, where a troubled Elijah, feeling depressed, feeling alone, he's being hunted by King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, And he's on Mount Horeb and has just cried out to God, explaining his troubles when God says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now we see in these moments of passing by in the Old Testament with Moses 
and Elijah. God's not passing by them as if they were insignificant or forgotten. When it says pass by, it's not like he's tiptoeing past them, hoping that he wouldn't be noticed. But it was the height of God's grace, giving them a glimpse of his glory. His aim was to give them reassurance in each of their cases. See, to pass by, again, doesn't mean to slip past us in hiding, but it speaks to the opposite. A revelation of his presence, of his personhood, who he is. And Jesus, again, here he's concerned with revealing that he's the Messiah. But I think sometimes when we think of theophanies, think of epiphanies that happen on mountaintops. Like that's the traditional location in scripture and even just in different cultures where you would encounter God. And we even talked about this in, in the brief series. We looked at the transfiguration for a few weeks before Easter, how that is a common place where people would encounter God. And we took this look at the transfiguration. We're in the same book, Mark chapter 9. Ironically, the two men of the Old Testament we just talked about that saw God pass by in these epiphanies and theophanies were present with Christ. But I think we sometimes forget that, yes, Moses and Elijah were on mountaintops, but we forget the situations they were in. Elijah, for instance, before God interceded, was, was ready to take his own life. Been on the run for over a month from people that sought to kill him. Like, you talk about drowning in deep water. You talk about a dark season. Yes, physically, he was on a mountain. But spiritually and emotionally, he was in a dark valley. Again, you look at the disciples in this passage, they weren't at some height where vision was unlimited. They were at the deepest part of the lake, on the surface, but at the deepest part of the lake in the darkest part of night. And while their culture and many religions saw mountaintops as places of epiphanies, their culture and many religions would view deep waters as a place of dangerous and sometimes sinister power. But instead we have Jesus in his power basically flexing his power as the creator of the wind and waves, walking on the waves, in the wind, in the midst of the storm. You know, again, Amanda preached such a phenomenal sermon last week about Psalm chapter 23. And one of the pair of verses in Psalm 23 kind of speaks to what we're talking about tonight. And I want to return to them. It's, it's verses 3 and 4 because Psalm 23 as we went over last week, and maybe you're familiar, it starts with the picture of God being the good shepherd, leads you on green pastures and beside still waters. And then in verse 3, it says, he guides me on paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And it goes on. And it, if I'm honest, it's kind of one of those wait what moments in one of the most famous passages of scripture that we have. Many people know Psalm 23. I've heard Psalm 23, whether they're in church or out of church. When you read that, if I'm honest, it's kind of like time out. If God is a good shepherd and he leads you on paths of righteousness, then what on earth are you doing in the valley of the shadow of death? Right? Paths of righteousness and the valley of the shadow of death seem like two very different paths. It seems like a, a crazy contrast of two paths. Like, like what is it, Robert Frost? poem where two uh, paths diverge in a yellow wood and you take one of the two. But what if in life sometimes they're one and the same? What if the valley of the shadow is the path of righteousness? What if God being light, it's in those dark places and in those shadows where we can most readily see his glory and who he is? What if, like, before we had digital pictures we could just take on our cell phones, you had to develop old school pictures, right? They developed in the dark. 
What if our picture of who God is and our revelation of what he means to us can actually be developed in the shadows and in the dark? What if the deepest and darkest seasons are where he drops his theophanies? Like, think about what Amanda shared last week. She shared from her testimony. If you didn't hear it, go back, listen to it. She spoke of the valley. She spoke of the proverbial storm and that deep and dark place. And she didn't speak of theophanies by name, but she did say, and I quote, that after the storm, I knew my shepherd better than I ever had before. God manifested who he was to her. And, you know, she hit on this a little bit last weekend, but when you read through Psalm 23, there's two very different settings. There's the idyllic at the beginning, and then there's the dark. There's the green pastures and still waters, where David talks about God in the third person, talks about him, that he leads me beside still waters. He guides me to green pastures. He does this. He does that. But then when the valley of the shadow of death hits, all of a sudden, it's you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We see that God has drawn near. David's perspective of him has changed as Amanda's did. Right? The epiphany often happens in the valley. The theophany sometimes happens in the deep and dark places. See, in Scripture, we do see God reveal himself on physical mountaintops. But it's proverbial mountaintops and, and the proverbial green pastures where we see again and again people so often forget him. Early in Scripture, as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, they're coming out of this valley season that was for centuries in slavery and then 40 years in the wilderness. That is a long valley. And God is setting them up for the promised land. They're about to step into green pastures and, and still waters for miles. And God warns them. It's Deuteronomy 8, verses 13 through 14. He says, when you watch your standard of living going up and up, make sure you don't become so full of yourself and your things that you forget God, your God. And if you read the Old Testament, you know what happens. Basically just that. In Hosea 13, 6, it says, when they had pasture, they became satisfied. They were satisfied and their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. This is where God leads them into a valley again. It's where he ushers them into exile. Right? Sometimes Jesus does usher us into a proverbial boat, and we go out into the darkest parts of the sea. Other times God uses circumstances not of his creation. But, man, in life, storms will hit you. And they'll come wave after wave. And life will hit you with blow after blow. You'll be struggling at the oars, rowing but making no progress. And sometimes those circumstances can blur our vision. Sometimes if we're honest, those circumstances, they shake our faith because if we're honest, we can project those circumstances on God. What am I talking about? You're in a season of pain and you begin to doubt his goodness. You're in a season of loss. You begin to doubt his love. You're in a season of hardship. You begin to doubt his power. I think it's natural. But I tell you, God's greatness it's not determined by circumstances because circumstances change. God's greatness isn't determined by your circumstances, but God's greatness is often experienced in your circumstances. Sometimes there's the miraculous deliverance. Sometimes there's, there's God parting the waters like he did at the Red Sea and like he did at the Jordan so you can walk through on dry ground. Sometimes there's simply his ministering presence, him joining you on the boat. Not teleporting to you to the destination you want to get to or the resolution you're seeking, but 
joining you in the moment. See, Jesus doesn't rescue his disciples out of the sea, but he enables them to continue to row. I think sometimes we miss God when he shows up because we're looking for deliverance rather than him joining us with his presence. I think another reason we miss is because we're so quick to ask the question why, which I think, again, is very natural. Why is the question we run to in dark times? Why is this happening? Why would Jesus put us in this boat, in this sea, in this storm? But the answer that Jesus wanted to provide wasn't to why, but to who. Who is this Messiah? The circumstance didn't determine who Jesus was. His greatness was experienced in it. Jesus was set to give evidence of who he was as Messiah, God in the flesh. Yet this episode in Mark 6, when you read it, it's basically a derailed attempt at a theophany, as his disciples were filled with fear rather than filled with faith. They thought he was a ghost, right? Rather than recognizing this was the creator bending water to his will, the same way he did at creation, the same way he did at the Red Sea and at the Jordan River, the dots didn't connect in the moment, right? They felt fear instead. The theophany didn't spark an epiphany in the disciples. And how often do we in a similar way fail to see God walking past and his blessings or his presence in our lives. Because if I'm honest, sometimes what I'm asking for is deliverance. It's a resolution. It's getting to what I'm asking for when God steps in in his presence. And I know I've been guilty of missing out on relationship because I'm seeking a transaction. I want the answer to my prayer when God wants to come beside me in that moment and simply minister to my heart. We see in this passage that It's not a rescue mission by Jesus, him coming out to the disciples. It says they were frustrated. They were straining, but they weren't about to die. They weren't in peril. The disciples, again, were frustrated by the winds and waves, but it doesn't look like they were about to perish. The only mention of panic in the text is when they see Jesus because they think he's a ghost. And, again, seeing somebody walking on water would be pretty wild, right? You might panic if you're in their shoes. But ultimately, we see that they're more frightened in his presence than they were in his absence. And we see again and again in the Gospels, as we see here, that miracles, they don't always spark faith. We think, man, if God would just work this miracle in my life, I would have an unshakable faith. But we see again and again in the Gospels, like it says here in verse 52, it says their hearts were still hard. And again, we see it again and again in the Gospels, and even in my own life and in our own lives, that God is among us, and sometimes I'm too dense to even see it. I'm too distracted by the wind and the waves, by the struggle and the straining, and today, we don't live in an age of, of theophanies, right? We may, we may not live like the disciples did with Christ in the flesh. You think about Moses, right? He just saw his back. The disciples made eye contact with Jesus, God in the flesh. But you know what we have? We have the cross and the resurrection. The clearest revelation of God and his power. And again, Jesus desperately wanted his disciples to know who he was, why he came, and what it meant for them. And again, I'll tell you tonight that Jesus desperately wants you to know who he is, why he came for you, and what that means for you, how we relate to him. But again, the panic we see in this story, it's not caused by the storm, but the perplexity, perplexion, the disciples being perplexed (laughs) was caused by the, not by the storm, but by Jesus. And the end of this account isn't the disciples walking in some new revelation about who Jesus is. It says they were perplexed. By Jesus. They were confused. They were amazed. 
all these words used in different translations for, for this feeling they were left with at the end of this account. You know, if I could have the worship team come up, the, the last point, and maybe the most important point for you, hands down and easily, is that the ultimate peril in your life isn't the storms or the suffering or the struggles that life may throw your way. The ultimate peril in your life is being unsure who Jesus is to you. It's not the storms. It's not the struggles. It's not the straining. Not knowing who Jesus is, not knowing what he did, and not knowing what that means to you, that's a dangerous place to be. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And some of us need to call time out on that question. We need to wait what, that question, and get to an understanding of who God is and what that means for us. And maybe for some of us, we've never slowed down enough, slowed down long enough to really wrestle with this question, to really get to where you could say, this is, this is who Jesus is to me. You know, are you much like the disciples in the, the first half of Mark, where you've spent time with Jesus? They were spending all this time with Jesus. They spent all this time in his presence, and yet they still weren't sure who he was. All right, you might have the churchy answer, right? You grew up in church. He's king. He's savior. He's Messiah. He's Christ. And some of us have grown up knowing those answers. But we need to wait what <laughs> this question, who do you say I am in the specific season we're in? Maybe you're looking for healing from sickness, healing from chronic pain, in need of peace from anxiety, rest from burdens, in need of courage instead of constant seeming discouragement. Some of us are walking through these seasons and it's, it's another opportunity for us to ask, okay, who is God to me? And for him to reveal himself again in new ways to where we can say, like Amanda said last week, and how Steph and I can say as we're walking through this season of chronic pain, I mean, I'm beginning to understand who God is and what he truly wants from me and what we can truly ask of him in new ways. I always want the transaction. I want the answer to my prayer right here, right now. God wants relationship. Jesus came because God saw, and he doesn't just sit back, he, he loves us. So I would ask, because we've got about 10 minutes left, and we're going to stand. If you could stand now, we're going to go back into worship. This question, who do you say I am? We can't run through this like we do so many things in our life where we fast break our way through our to-do list. The wait in, wait, what? Will likely be longer than this moment. It's likely going to be longer than tonight. Answering that question is something that we all wrestle with in new seasons. And man, I, I tell you practically, if you're like, man, I need to wrestle with this question, or I've, I've never even slowed down for more than maybe five or 10 minutes to think, who is Jesus to me and what does it mean? Read through the book of Mark. Again, it's a fast paced gospel. You can read through it quickly. Not that that's the goal, but it is the quickest read of the gospels. And its main goal, again, is to show that Jesus is the Messiah, how he ushered in his kingdom, how he reaches us and offers us salvation. That's just practical. I'd, I'd advise you, read through Mark. Pick up your Bible, read through God's word. And as you do that, worship. Worship God's word through words of worship. They remind us of God's unchanging character. One of the powerful things about coming together once a week 
to, to worship together and sing these songs is because each week our lives might be a mountaintop or a valley. You might have gone through hell or you might have had the best week of, of the past year. But guess what? God doesn't change. And when we come together, you might think, man, we sang this song two weeks ago. That's because guess what? God hasn't changed, right? It's one of the powerful things about picking up your Bible every day to read and remind yourself that, hey, I don't know what today's gonna bring. I don't know if it's gonna be a mountaintop or a valley, but God doesn't change. And God wants to reveal that to us again and again. But man, as we go into worship, if you would say, yeah, I've, I've been wrestling with the oars, trying to get out of this deep place, this dark place, and I just need God to show up. I feel like I can't see him. I know that he sees me, but I need him to show up. I pray you'll be able to look up tonight, see Jesus in his power, Jesus in his grace, Jesus in his love, Jesus in his might, whatever it is you need. Man, if you're in that place and you're thinking, man, I've been at the oars struggling and I need God to show up again. Steph and I, what we've been walking through, I would raise my hand. But if you're here and you would say, yes, I'm in a, a place where I feel like I'm, I'm treading water. I'm at the oars and I need God to move. And I just ask you, raise your hand and I just want to pray. Again, my hand is raised because I need this too. Dear God, I thank you that you see every hand raised. You know every detail. And you're not the God that just created us, set us in motion, put breath in our lungs, and then sat back so that you could... Uh, just see how it plays out. But I thank you that like Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars, God, you, you see what we're walking through. And I thank you that you don't just see, you don't just know, but you care and you love. And if we ever doubt that, we don't have to look any further than the cross and the empty grave. We thank you that that's never gonna change, that that's unshakable, that you already won the war. God, but we know that there's gonna be battles. And while the enemy is defeated, there's still guerrilla warfare. But God, we pray and I pray tonight that that as we look up from what we've been straining from, as we take this time to return to worship, that as we look up, lift our hands and praise you, you would remind us of your grace, remind us of your mercy, remind us of your love, remind us of your power, the same power that Jesus could say, hey, I'm gonna walk on water out to these disciples. God, you still, God, walk in that power. You went on to defeat the grave and the same resurrection power that lifted you from the grave is here tonight in your Holy Spirit. God, remind us as we sing these songs of your goodness and your love. God, shift our perspective to see you again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. If you need prayer, specific prayer, prayer for anything, Tyler and Emily would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. But let's sing.